Well, amen. It is well with my soul. One of my all-time favorite. Uh, oh, that's right. I, well, right up there in my top ten anyway, I'm sure. That third verse just knocks me out. It just knocks me out of here. You know, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. It is well with my soul. I mean, that just is the gospel. That is just simply the gospel. Well, tonight we come back to the Apostles' Creed. And uh, we're going to look at two statements on it tonight. I'm, we're not going to read the whole thing tonight because it just causes too much trouble. I'll take it a point at a time. But uh, we are going to come to those second and third, um, uh, uh, third and fourth bullets there that you see on it. Uh, I want you to understand some of those. We've talked about this before. I think I, as we started this series, I made this comment, but I want to kind of use it to emphasize something that's important to remember, I think. The, uh, the two words there, I believe, those really are the essence of the creed. Uh, the creed is an expression of faith. It's a confession of faith. And so when, when you say, I believe in God, then there is the descriptive of God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. So, so the first thing you, you really have there is an expression of, of, of who God is, an expression of belief in him. A second thing that comes along there, and usually does, there we go. Uh, well, I've got two and three there. The second one is, you know, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in God, the description of God. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And really, those are everything we're talking about through tonight, uh, and even some next week. Uh, describe our belief in Jesus Christ. The, the whole creed is, is Trinitarian, as the Bible is Trinitarian. It speaks to the three persons of the Trinity. But, but this concept of I believe, uh, credo, uh, the word that means I believe, the word which creed comes from, I believe in all these things. Now, what, what is in the, the Apostles' Creed is just what has been for generations and generations a, um, a simple expression of, of basic Christianity, a simple expression of what the basics of this, this faith really is all about. And so tonight we come to this part, he descended into hell, the third day he rose again, arose again from the dead. He descended into hell, and the third day he arose again from the dead. Now, the second part of that we don't have trouble with. I hope some people have, and some people still do, but primarily, we're just simply talking about the resurrection of Christ. And we'll talk about that a little more in depth in a minute. But it's that phrase, he descended into hell, that sometimes throws people for a real loop. Now, in some forms of the, of the Apostles' Creed, that, that phrase is not even in there. Uh, some scholars believe that it was not in the original Apostles' Creed, that it was added sometime later to express a certain viewpoint or a certain understanding of, uh, of uh, what happened in those three days when Christ uh, lay in the grave. But, but I believe that they've been there all along. Uh, this phrase has been there all along from all my studies on this. The problem that many times arises is, is really with an understanding of, of he, he descended to hell, what that means. There are two words in the biblical text that are variously translated hell. 
Now, really, there are three if you take Hebrew and Greek, but we'll use one, uh, two of the words together to express that. The first one is simply the word Gehenna. The word Gehenna is a word that many times in the, in the text of the Bible is translated as hell. Gehenna was that burning fire of hell. That is the, uh, Gehenna, if you will, is the place of eternal punishment. Gehenna is that place that is reserved for Satan and his legions and all that, that, that follow him. Now, a lot of people have a real misunderstanding about Gehenna, about hell in that respect. Some believe that, well, we're, we're talking about hell, we're talking about Gehenna, we're talking about this place where Satan is cast in the utter darkness in the last, at the judgment, that indeed what he, they're talking about here is that, that a place where Satan is in charge, where Satan rules. As a matter of fact, a lot of our cartoons kind of give that indication. You know, you'll, you'll see Satan standing there with a pitchfork poking people and, and doing all sorts of weird things that have nothing to do with what the scripture says. Indeed, Satan is not ruling in hell. Satan is being punished in hell just as everyone else is that goes there. Satan is not now reigning over that realm. He is there under the punishment of God because of his rebellion and because of his turning his back and desiring to be God. And so he is there being punished also. Now, some people say, well, you know, the, the, the hell of hell, the terribleness of hell is the absence of God. I think the hell of hell is just the opposite. I think it's the presence of God in a non-relational way. It's the presence of God in expressing not his love, not his grace, not his mercy, but only his wrath. It's a place of eternal wrath of God being poured out on sin and sinners uh, for all of eternity. It is not a place where there is an ultimate quenching, there is an ultimate uh, annihilation, as some have come in these last few uh, uh, decades to to uh, bring forth a theory that, well, maybe in, in hell there is a punishment, there is the severity of it, there's the wrath of God, but at some point then there's just the annihilation and everything just goes away. There's no scriptural indication to indicate that. A second word that's used or translated hell many times is the word Hades and also the, the Hebrew word Sheol. Hades is a Greek term. Sheol is a is a Hebrew term, and literally that just simply means the realm of the dead, the, the, the place of the dead, the place where the dead go. Now, we can get all sorts of discussions here. Is that paradise? Is that a holding cell? Some would say it's a, a purgatory type situation. There are all sorts of things. I don't think it's a purgatory situation because purgatory indicates that you go there and then you uh, are punished a little bit and you get out of it because your sins have been paid for. The only way you miss Gehenna is by your sins being paid for by Jesus Christ. That's the only way. There's no way you can pay for those in a period of time in some place. But Hades does not mean that burning place of eternal punishment. Hades means just the realm of the dead. It's where the saints of the Old Testament were, I believe, before, before Christ came. It was the place where they went. They did not go into utter darkness. They did not go into utter punishment, but they also did not enter into heaven until the actual atoning sacrifice had been made. And, and so you've got these two words that if you're not careful, you see the word hell and you just immediately assume it is Gehenna. The word in the creed that's used here is the word Hades. It's the word Sheol. It's the word that talks about this, this place of the dead. It, it, it sort of echoes, the creed sort of echoes Peter's statement 
in Psalm, from Psalm 16 and 10, where Peter quotes it later and says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, talking about the Messiah, saying that the Messiah will die, he will go into Hades, he will go into the realm of the dead, but God will not abandon him there. He will be resurrected from there, raised from the dead, and ascended to heaven, as we will see next week in the ascension part of this. But, but the point to understand is, when, when the word hell is used in this part, it, it's probably not a, 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 a great word for our generation or our culture to interpret it because it seems like it's talking about he went into a place of, of, of punishment, a place of... Uh, a literal place. Now also, understand when it says he descended into hell, uh, it does not mean here that Palestine was here and he went down to get to hell. You know, there, there was some kind of location. Now a lot of people and uh, assumed that hell was located somewhere in the middle of the earth. I know as a child, that's what I always thought. I thought, man, if you dig too deep a hole, you're in trouble because you're going to find yourself in hell. And I, I, I was always afraid about digging holes. I dug them but I, I always worried about going too far because I might get just a little too close and that'd be a problem, you know, because we, we kind of picture it as being under the earth, the underworld, as, as even some of the stories have, have indicated. But it's, it's really not talking about a place as much as it is just talking about that he really died. He descended into death. He descended into the, into the place of the dead. He really did die, a genuine death, not a simulated one, and then he rose from that death because God would not abandon his soul in Sheol, according to Psalm 16, 10. Now, there, there are several things that perhaps we ought to say about this as we look at this and think about this whole concept of he descended into uh, to Hades or descended into the realm of the dead or descended, as the creed is translated, descended into hell. Uh, first of all, uh, we need to understand that some people have totally taken this and, and run in a whole different direction with it and said, well, what happened there? And they, they interpret what Peter says in Peter 3, uh, 19 and verses around that as the fact that Jesus went to hell and he preached a second chance. That what is happening here is that when Christ died, he went to those that were uh, had been abandoned, in the, those who had been disobedient in the days of Moses, those who had been disobedient in other times and, and other people who did not follow Yahweh God in the Old Testament, offering the sacrifices that foreshadowed the Messiah, believing that the Messiah was coming, that he went there and he said, look, you guys, here I am. I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. Now, if you will see who I am and believe in me, I'll get you out of this mess. I don't think this is teaching some kind of second evangelistic chance after we die. Some have believed that. Some have said that they believe that those who've never heard and even those who've rejected in this life will get a second chance after death. And most of those are universalists who believe that ultimately all people will be saved anyway. Look at, look at uh, 1 Peter with me just a second. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm, I ought to read that before I get ahead of myself. First Peter chapter 3. And we'll start reading really in verse 17. Paul, uh, Peter here, remember, is, is talking to a church that's under persecution. This whole letter is written to encourage them that, that they have a Savior, to encourage them that they have someone who cares. And, and, and in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their persecution, they are not alone. 
Verse 17 says, For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now listen to verse 19. In which he also went, evidently in the Spirit, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone to heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now they look there in verses 19 and 20, and that, that's where that first kind of theory comes out. He went there, he went to Hades, and there he, he proclaimed evangelistically the gospel and gave them a chance to believe after death. As I say, there's really no, no truth in that. There's no uh, understanding of that in any way as being a possibility. Uh, a second thing is that he went... And he perfected the Old Testament believers there. Those who did believe in the Old Testament times, who had looked forward to the coming of the Messiah through the sacrifices, through their faith in what God had promised, that he went there and he perfected them, bringing them out of the gloom that is a part of Hades, a part of Sheol, and, and brought them into glory, brought them into a paradise experience. Because he did say on the cross that day to the... To the uh, uh, penitent thief, today you will be with me in paradise. And, and so there seems to be some kind of declaration to believers there, spirits who were imprisoned because the sac full sacrifice had not yet been offered, but who now were set free from that waiting time in his coming. Uh, and it brought them into this paradise experience. You know, this is kind of the core of of some of the medieval uh, uh, stories and fantasies about the harrowing of hell and, and, and the hounds searching out hell for those who believe. It's not the punishing hell. It's the place of the, the realm of the dead, the place of, uh, of death. Third thing, and I think really what Peter is talking about here, is when he says he went and proclaimed made proclamation to the spirits now in prison is that he went and just proclaimed about his kingdom and about their judgment. That he was saying to those who were in Moses' times who rejected the salvation of God, those who in other times rejected uh, the coming Messiah, rejected his law, rejected his prophets, that he simply went to them and said, I want you to know my kingdom has come and now I have been appointed as judge to all those imprisoned spirits who had rebelled during the times of Moses. He did have that ministry some way during those days. It's, it's not fully developed in Scripture. It's, it's implied to here in Peter, but it's not a full-blown understanding. Although in 2 Peter 2.4, you find there that, uh, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. 
And if you condemn the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, huh? Here's an interesting statement. Would you have thought, if you just read the story of Lot in the Old Testament, that he was righteous? That he was a believer? Only way we know that he is a righteous, was a righteous man, was a believer, is because Peter tells us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Well, I don't have time to deal with that, but I figured you'd notice that, so I want to just mention it to you. And I lost my place. If he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. He tells us something of, of Lot's struggle there, much like Paul's struggle in Romans 7, I think, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring, self-will. They do not tremble when they revile uh, angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reveling judgment against them before the Lord. And he goes on and talks a bit about that. What, what I believe Peter is saying here, both 1 Peter and 2 Peter, is that he went and declared that judgment had come and he was the righteous judge who would be, who would be judging them on the day of judgment. There's another dimension of this, though, idea of hell that I, I don't think we can avoid looking at for just a moment. When it says that he, let me see if I can back this thing up. Here we go. Slowly, but then it goes all the way. When it says that he descended into hell, there is a sense in which we must understand that what took place on the cross when he died there was an experience of hell. It was an experience of the wrath of God being poured out upon him as our sins were placed upon him, all the sins of everyone who ever believed being placed upon his head, upon his body, and the wrath of God being poured out in that moment. What else did he mean when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was that sense of, of disconnect. There was that sense of, of wrath, not, not, not the lack of presence of God, God was always present. God is always present. But there was that sense of the wrath of God being poured out. He was paying the price for the sin uh, that you and I committed. He was paying the price that we should have paid. He did not know any sin. He only knew perfection. He only knew righteousness. He only knew godliness. And yet in that moment, Paul says to the Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the very righteousness of God. Now you think about that for a moment. As he takes upon our sin and bears it on that cross in order to be able to give us righteousness, in order to impute to us righteousness, in order that we might be the very righteousness of God, you think about what that must have been like. He had never known any of the wrath of God on his 33 or so years on this earth. He only knew the joy of Christ. He only knew the pleasure of God. He only knew the, uh, the joy of serving God and doing his will. As I read this morning, the, as we observed the Lord's Supper, he, he, came to, he said, I didn't come to do my will. I came to do the will of him who sent me, and he did it perfectly. 
perfectly. So he only knew joy and fellowship and, and, and the peace of God in every moment of his life until that moment. And in that moment, he hung on the cross and he took what we deserved. He took upon himself the wrath of God because of my sin. The wrath that I should experience, the wrath that I deserve, the wrath that is a just payment for my sin. And he took it. So there is a sense in which there was a, an expression or ex experience of hell where he descended into hell by taking my wrath and your wrath upon himself as he hung there and died. Didn't mean he, he didn't have to go to the pit to do that. He did it in his sacrifice as he received that which we deserved in that moment. So he descended into hell. There was activity in those three days where he went to Hades, went to the realm of the dead. He proclaimed something to somebody. And those days were days of silence on the earth, but evidently days where Christ was very active. So he has, he has descended into hell. But then on the third day, the creed says, I believe he descended into hell. I believe that the third day he rose again from the dead. Now, now, we could spend a long time this evening talking about the importance of the resurrection. Uh, we've talked about it before, and we'll talk about it many other times again, and you know that we will. But, you know, the, uh, some people in our day are actually asking, they've been asked this a long time, not just in our day, but they've asked the question, suppose that Jesus, having died on the cross, that he just stayed dead. Suppose that like, any other number of leaders, Buddha, Socrates, Confucius, that he now, it was no more than just sort of a, a beautiful memory. Would it really matter? I mean, would he, would, we would still have his teaching, his example, and his life, and the teachings that he gave us, and wouldn't they be enough? Well, that was, that's been the argument, like I say, for a long time for a lot of people that we really don't have to have all that. Matter of fact, I, I went and got this. I meant to bring it in. I forgot it. I went back and got it. Uh, this little book is entitled the, uh, the Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, it, if you'll see on the front, it, it has a different title because it came to be known as the Jefferson Bible. And it's really just the New Testament. It's not the whole Bible. But, but what one of our founders, Thomas Jefferson, who I think was a great founder, and had some great understanding of some truths that were written into the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, he really blew it when it came to understanding Christianity. Basically what he did was he went through the New Testament and he chose what he really liked. And what he really liked were the, the stories of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the, the uh, you know, when he, would, when he would tell little parables, he loved the parables, and he would take those. The thing he didn't really care for so much were things like the miracles of Jesus. And he would cut those out. There was one miracle he found most offensive, and that's why his Bible ends this way. This is the way it ends. The last statement of the Bible. And they rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. That's the end. 
And Jeff said, but we still have his teaching. We still have his example. We still have his life. Is that not enough? Well, it may be enough for some people to think they can get by on, but it's not enough for Christianity. As a matter of fact, if you take away the resurrection, Christianity would drop out. It would be no more. It would have no meaning at all. It hinges on that resurrection. So that's why after talking about he was conceived of the Holy, Holy Spirit, he was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, buried, ascended or descended into hell, that on the third day he rose again. Because if he does not, rose, uh, rose again. If he does not rise again, all of that that goes before it has absolutely no significance and no meaning whatsoever. I think really there are about four things, and Paul makes these arguments very clearly in, in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. There are four things that would be true if he didn't really rise from the dead. The first thing is that, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Christ has not risen from the dead, Christianity is nothing. We are wasting our time meeting here on Sunday morning. We're wasting our time meeting here on Sunday night. We're wasting our time opening the Bible. We're wasting our time doing any number of things. Just go and do what you want to do. Because if Christ did not raise, you're still in your sins and it's useless. Second thing, if there is no resurrection, then there is no hope of our rising either. Basically what we need to expect is not a resurrection in the last day, not an ascension with the, the Lord of glory into heaven, but if there's no resurrection, we're not going to rise. We're going to just lay in the grave and go back to dust and that's it. You know, you, you're born, you live, you die, and you're gone. But the scripture is filled with the truth that our souls are immortal. Our souls will live on forever. And the resurrection of Christ proves that, demonstrates that. But if Christ is not risen, then we have no hope for that either. Thirdly, if Christ is not risen, then he is not reigning and he will not return, and every single item in the creed after the term he suffered and was buried would have to be struck out. Everything we were talking about last or two weeks ago tonight and in the next coming weeks are absolutely useless. He, if he didn't rise from the dead, there is no Holy Spirit. If he didn't rise from the dead, there is no second coming. If he didn't rise from the dead, none of the rest of the creed makes any sense whatsoever. And then fourth, Christianity cannot be what the first Christians thought that it was. In other words, the first Christians saw Christianity as fellowship with the living Lord who is identified and identical with the Jesus of the Gospels. If Christ is not risen again, he can still be your hero. He can still be a, a great historical figure, and you can say, oh, there's my hero, there's my example. They can still do that, but he cannot be your savior. Cannot be your savior. And there is no fellowship with the risen Lord that Paul and the other apostles made clear was a reality. So what does Jesus rising from the dead mean? Well, in a word, it marked Jesus out as the son of God. In Romans chapter 1 verse 4, the apostle Paul said, and he has been declared the son of God by his resurrection. 
by being brought back from the dead, did not make him the Son of God. He was already the preeminent Son of God for, for all of eternity. He is the, the only begotten. He is the eternal Son of God in eternity past. But his resurrection has marked him out, has, has declared to us that he is the Son of God. The resurrection vindicated his righteousness. Uh, John 16.10, John talks about that. He, he says the resurrection is what proved him to be a righteous man in, in absolute total righteousness. Righteousness that he can impute to us and can give to us. Thirdly, it demonstrated victory over death. Acts 2.4, when, when Peter was preaching, uh, 2.24 rather, when Peter was preaching to the people at Pentecost in Jerusalem, he said, oh, oh, men of Israel, this one whom you crucified at the hands of godless men, you put him to death, but God raised him again because the grave could not keep him. Death could not hold him. Death could not be the final victor. He is the absolute and complete final victor. Fourthly, his resurrection guarantees the believer's forgiveness and justification. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, the apostle says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. But if Christ is raised, all who believe, all who put their faith in him, their faith is not in vain, and their sins are forgiven. And they are justified by his grace and by his righteousness. And our own future resurrection is guaranteed also. Not just our forgiveness, not just our justification, but our future resurrection, which he goes on to say in verse 18, then those who, are, who, who have fallen asleep, that's a word for death, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, then we are of all men most to be pitied. What Paul is saying there is that his death and his resurrection guarantees our future resurrection. We're not asleep in him, perished. We are asleep in him, awaiting his coming again when our bodies will be raised with him. And, and then fifthly, I think Paul makes clear in, in Romans chapter 6, in Romans chapter 6 in verse 4, where he says, and he, there he makes clear that, that his resurrection brings him into the reality of the res brings us into the reality of the resurrected life now. He says, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism unto death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. This newness of life is the reality of the resurrection experienced now because of our trust in him. You know, you could you could almost say that Jesus rising from the dead is the most hopeful, indeed most hope-filled thing that has ever happened. And you'd be right. That's a quote from J.I. Packer. Packer says you can, it's a marvelous thing and you can speak of Jesus rising as the most hopeful, that is hope-filled thing that has ever happened in all of history, in all of time. And you'd be absolutely right. You see, the creed is teaching us what belief is, what faith is, what historical Christian faith is really all about. That we might trust him and that we might live in him and that we might walk in him.
Well, we'll go a little further with the idea of resurrection and where that leads next week. Let's pray together. Father, again, we're thankful for your goodness and your grace. We're thankful, Lord, for the truth of your resurrection. We're thankful for the truth of your having died that we might live. And Father, we pray right now that your Holy Spirit will just bind us together with you in truth. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.